If you have a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, I'd encourage you to grab it and open it to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 8 through 10. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be uh, one underneath or around you, uh, a hardback black one. Um, And if you turn to page 922, you'll find Philippians uh, 3, the page that we're on and the text that we'll be in. Uh, this morning, if, if I have not met you yet, my name is David and I'm one of the elders here. And I am glad that you are uh, here this morning because he is risen. He is risen Isn't it funny how we, we are just so prepped? We are ready. Some of us are like, this is my heritage. I've said this before, but we celebrate this truth this morning. Um, we are excited Um, And not because of anything of us or in us, but because of Christ alone. And so if you are just joining us, you may already know that, that he is risen and he is risen indeed. But you might not know why that is significant or why the gospel really changes everything. And so this morning, we are uh, actually coming to a conclusion in a series that we have been in, in preparation for today. But in hearing that, I want you to understand, you're not too late, okay? If you haven't been here before, you aren't coming in at the wrong time. In fact, I don't believe there's ever a wrong time in this life to come and to meet with Christ. And so this morning, we are wrapping up a very short series in the book of Philippians. We've examined just a few verses from the first three chapters, and we have been looking at how the gospel changes everything. And this is a letter from the Apostle Paul While he is in prison, and despite his imprisonment, he is contending for the church to be filled with joy, to be unified, and really to remember all that Christ has done for them. And so this morning, both because of our text and because of our theme this morning, we are remembering what Christ has done for us. And really, that news, that truth changes absolutely everything everything. In fact, my prayer is that you would not leave here this morning the same. And see, Paul in Philippians 3 is going to even make the point that everything is worthless. Everything is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. And we will see him make several comparisons. And Paul will even make the point, as he has throughout this letter, that to live is Christ. Paul really is making the standard of life. He's going to continue to make the standard of life, the aim of all that we do and all that defines life to be Jesus Christ alone, that Christ alone saves, that Christ alone secures and Christ alone satisfies. And so even we understand this morning that there would, no be, there would never be anything such as Christianity if it were not for Christ See, even as we come to the text, Paul is going to give us a list of his own accomplishments, uh, his resume, if you will. And he's going to say it's nothing in comparison to Christ. And so the question this morning that I believe each of us really needs to answer at one point or another is this, is everything worth more to me than Christ or is Christ worth more to me than everything else? See, Paul is adamant in this chapter, I would say in this whole letter to the church in Philippi, that Christ is everything. Christ is everything. And I hope that if you stick around, you would find the same here. That not just because of our name, 
But all that we do, all that we preach, would proclaim that Christ is everything. And so as we go to the text, what we're going to see in our outline is that everything is worthless compared to Christ. For we are found in him through faith, and we know him and his resurrection. So if you're taking this notes this morning, I'd encourage you, just give, I'm just giving those to you right out of the gate, that you would understand in this text what we are seeking to understand and apply is that everything is worthless compared to Christ. For we are found in him through faith, and we know him and his resurrection. And so we're going to read in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather here together. And God, I pray that as we reflect upon the gospel, as we remember all that Christ has done upon the cross for us, God, may we not leave here the same. God, may this time change us and not because of anything I have to say or do, but because of what you have done, what, because of what you have already done. May that change the way we live and may that change everything. So God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. So in chapter three of Philippians, in setting up his case for the argument that Christ is everything, Paul said earlier in verse four that if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. See, Paul had an extensive resume. And so if anyone was going to be confident and boast, it was Paul. See, recently what's interesting is I have found myself helping a couple of friends and family members with their resumes. And this tends to happen when you have a background background in design. But one of the things I have noticed about the way in which we are taught to format these documents is to put all of our accomplishments and our abilities up front and center. I mean, this is really what we're taught should dominate the page, showing the confidence in your work. I mean, no one wants to receive a resume that says, I think I can do that. But really, we put forward our best that we are justified in seeking that job, that we are fit for that work. And so then with that resume in hand, we walk into an interview and we pitch to that person our aim in life, our aim in our confident work. I mean, really, we all do this. And if you have ever had a job interview or you've turned in a resume, you know this. I mean, you put your best forward. You dress nice, you come prepared, and you show up on time. I mean, many of you may think of this day as adding to your resume as you came prepared, you showed up, you dressed nice, you came early. 
And so maybe you think that even in that, it adds to your resume. But Paul in the text is going to break the mold. In fact, he's going to look at that and see it very differently. He's going to lay out his resume, and then he's going to abandon it. And why? Because Paul knew his true aim, his true purpose, and he had no shame in sharing it. See, earlier in verses 5 and 6, Paul listed four things that were his possession by birth. And he shared these as reasons that he had more confidence in the flesh. He said that he was circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the law, which was a requirement in the Old Testament that we find in Leviticus 12. And he also said that he was of the stock of Israel, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore an heir to God's covenant with them. And he also said that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, and this was a distinguished tribe. I mean, Benjamin was the distinguished tribe by the fact that, for one, they they gave Israel her first king, Saul. And it was the tribe that aligned itself with faithful Judah when Israel divided over two nations. And then finally, he said that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. See, this is important because in that time, many Jews became ashamed of their heritage and actually tried to live and to act as much like the Greeks as they could. But Paul, he's saying, was raised by his parents as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So he had much to be confident in the flesh. And then Paul even went on and listed three things that were his by personal choice and by conviction. He gave all these reasons why he would even further have confidence in the flesh. So he says, concerning the law, a Pharisee. And here he tells us this because this is an elite group among an elite group. That among the Jewish people, there was an elite sect called the Pharisees. And they were noted for their rigorous devotion to the law of God. They were, as we would call, the theologians of their day. And then he says, concerning zeal, a persecutor of the church. And listen, Paul was not merely one who gave verbal opposition of any heresy against Judaism. He was also an active fighter against them. In the book of Acts, in in chapter 9, we find how ferociously he was seeking to persecute the church by killing Christians. He actively killed and imprisoned all who would teach and believe Christianity. And then he goes on and says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And really this showed that Paul achieved the standard for righteousness that was accepted among the men of his day. And so where he had received the standard of righteousness among his peers, he still did not reach the standard of God's holy standard. He fell short. So in the eyes of his peers, Paul was the best of the best, even though he fell short of God's holy standard. And so he had the greatest reason for confidence in the flesh. And yet, Paul listing these accomplishments and his extensive resume is not for the purpose of boasting in himself now. No, in fact, Paul is expressing what he is going to lay down, what he considers worthless because of knowing Christ. See, this is why Paul said in verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, Paul had previously put all his confidence in his own human ability, his religion, his sincerity, his race, his tribe, his rank, his self-righteousness. And really, Paul believed that he was saved because of his religious privilege and his religious achievement. I mean, today, even for many who would claim to be religious or spiritual, even in the midst of that, they really put forth their own work and that their true confidence is really in their own resumes. That really what they do as a good person or even as a decent person is the very thing they believe will save them and afford them eternal life. But see, Paul is saying the opposite in the text. Paul is abandoning, he's shredding his entire resume and forsaking it, as he says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And then we see Paul continue. And he says, for his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, Paul calls his religious accomplishments rubbish here in the ESV translation. Or if you have a King James translation, it says dung. It's all dung compared to knowing Christ. And the Greek word here is only referenced here in in the New Testament. And this word refers to animal or human excrement. And so basically he is saying what I cannot completely say in my sermon in English, but essentially it's all crap compared to knowing Christ. And so understand the vulgarity of the term is intended. Paul wants to strike us with the worthlessness of life on our own resumes apart from Jesus Christ. And so understand, this is not Paul just surrendering all things. He's not just saying, unto you, Lord, I give you all things. This is the way that he views all those things in comparison to Christ. And why? Why does Paul have such a disregard for his resume? It's because of his relationship with Jesus. It's far more important to him than anything else. And so let me ask you this morning, friends, what do you value most? Is it your resume? Is it your friends or your family? Is it your work or your life? See, Paul counted everything as loss, as rubbish, because he knew Christ. And really, what does it mean to know Christ? Well, Paul uses the term knowledge at the end of verse eight, which is derived from the Hebrew. And in the Old Testament, this word knowledge meant living in a close relationship with somebody. In fact, if we go to Jeremiah chapter nine, the prophet is writing what the Lord instructs him to in verse 23 and 24. And he says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. See, church, knowing Christ means being in close relationship with him. It means boasting in him and knowing him deeply. 
And understand, this is different than knowing a lot about someone. I mean, for example, many of you know my wife, but not like I do. I have an intimacy and a relationship with her that is different from others. And that is something, understand, that's not just given to me freely. I have to work at that. I spend time with her. I get in front of her in order to know her in that intimate way. This is what it's like to know Christ. It's not what you know about him. It's knowing him intimately in relationship. And so this is why Paul counted everything as lost, as worthless, because he intimately knew Christ. He had found everything else as worthless compared to him. And so here at the end of verse eight, Paul is saying, I have suffered for this relationship. I have counted all as lost for this relationship. And in doing so, I gain Christ. See, Paul is not aiming for increase in his resume. He's not looking for a promotion. He's seeking Christ. But again, as Paul goes on to say, this is not because of his own work or his own righteousness, but because of Christ alone and Christ's righteousness. See, Paul says in verse nine, and he goes on to explain that since he has gained Christ, he can be found in him. Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, what a comfort it is to know that in this life, the Christian seeks no confidence in themselves, but in that single line, those simple four words that point to our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we may be found in him. See, if you are lost this morning, spiritually lost, the invitation is to put down your resume and to come to Christ, to put down all that you are trying to work out and do upon your own righteousness and come to Christ, to be found in him through faith. For in yourself, see, in your own works of righteousness, you are not found. You are not found. You are lost. You are dead in your sin and trespasses, as the Bible would tell us. And all of your confidence, if not in Christ, will actually afford you nothing. See, this is why Paul made the point earlier in verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. But what does Paul do with that confidence? He lays it aside. He considers it rubbish to be found in Christ. And so friends, what do you do with your confidence? What do you put your confidence in? See, really, there must come a day when you realize your confidence and your works will not last. See, it will not sustain you and it will not save you. Your own works will not save you. See, this is the comparison Paul makes in verse nine. He he simply compares his righteousness under the law and the righteousness that is found in Christ, which he tells us is much greater. Now, here's what's interesting in what Paul is saying. If we go back to verse six, 
he said, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And now in verse nine, he said that he was not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. See, what Paul is saying is that in verse six, he considered himself blameless. And in verse nine, he knows that he is unable to obtain righteousness through observing the law, even though he could be considered blameless. See, Paul observed and he obeyed the Torah. He observed and obeyed all of the commandments, over 600. But all of that work still did not make him sinless. He was blameless in the eyes of his peers, but not in the eyes of God. See, what we need to understand is that the law demands righteousness. Even now today, the law requires moral standards, moral rightness, righteousness. And so even if you do not live for Christ and you do not pledge your allegiance to Christ, you are required to follow and to fulfill the law. See, this is what it means to trust in yourself, to have your confidence in your own works. You alone are required to follow and to fulfill the law. And so let me tell you, if for you, you don't trust in and you do not have faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and you're trying to earn your own righteousness. And so then living and trusting in your own merit and your own good works, here's what happens. You begin to have to project and really work out an ultimate false strength. I mean, you have no other choice but to do that. And so if it's based on your righteousness, then understand if you're tired, you have to try harder. If you feel broken, you have to study more. If you feel lost, you need to search more. If you have a need, you have to give more. And on and on it goes. You have to. You must do in order for something to be done. And so let me tell you, if you feel tired and worried in the midst of you trying to work out your own righteousness, I mean, even that one day, maybe you're going to be found out that everyone's going to be able to finally see you're not as strong as you think you are. You're not as good as you think you are. And you're not as perfect as you think you are. You are not righteous under the law enough. Can I just be honest with you? You're not. You're not. The only true measure of righteousness is Jesus Christ alone. And so it's not about your attempt at righteousness. In fact, the more you attempt, the more you're going to be crushed under the weight of your own sin. Because it's about you trusting and believing upon Jesus Christ alone, where you rest in his righteousness. So your righteousness is wearisome. His righteousness creates rest for the believer. So understand, just for a moment, let's consider this. And let's look at the law together. I mean, let's, let's take a, a, a Ten Commandments test and see how we measure up. And I know what you're thinking. You're going, I did not come here on Easter Sunday for a test. Surprise. Let, let's, do, let's do Exodus 20 and see how we land, uh, line up with these commandments. See, we would find in Exodus 20 that the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. 
So let me ask you, do you love things with more dedication and more fervor than you love God? See, you don't have to answer that. I know that. Yes, you do. So do I. And then in the sixth commandment, it says, you shall not murder. And maybe you're saying, listen, pastor, I haven't murdered anybody. I'm not out on parole. And that may be true, but all of us, our hearts are often filled with anger. I mean, we may even be the type who flips a single digit when things go wrong in the traffic line. So all of us have this issue. And then in the seventh commandment, it says, you shall not commit adultery. And maybe you haven't committed adultery, but what the Bible tells us is all of our hearts are filled with lust. And so understand, you and I are going to over and over and over again fail that test. You are going to be crushed under the weight of your own work. And so you need to understand something vitally important. And that is that the Ten Commandments and the law were not given because any of us were ever going to be able to perfectly keep them. But they were given to show us at the very base level that none of us would ever be able to. And we need help. None of us can stand and complete God's holy standard. So see, the law reveals our sin, our lack of righteousness, and it points out our need for a savior. That Christ fulfilled the law in our place so that by faith in him, we could become free in him. See, this is what Paul points to. This is what he points us to in speaking of righteousness, as he said here in verse nine, saying, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So listen, as we examine the law, we took that test just a moment ago. We don't fill in our accomplishments and our righteousness. We don't look to our work and our resumes, but to Christ's. And so when we put Christ up against the law, we see a different result. So we ask, is, is Christ a liar? No, he is sinless. He was beaten for your lies. Is Christ a murderer? No, he is sinless. And he was murdered for your crimes. And is Christ an adulterer? No, he is sinless. And he was crushed for your sin. See, what Paul recognizes and what he wants us to recognize is that justification is not based upon human achievements or obedience of the law, but entirely and exclusively upon the righteousness from God, which is by the work of Christ, given to those by faith who are in union with him. And so understand, we are counted righteous by Christ alone only by being justified in him through faith can we be righteous. It's not our own righteousness. It's the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And so understand, let me paint a little picture for you so you can understand and you can see the beauty and the amazing grace of God in this. See, there was a a story in the news a few years back where a woman lost her young boy. 
her four-year-old son to unknown circumstances. And very quickly, the, the mother was asked so that another young child could live. Would the mother give the son's heart to this other child that was dying, who couldn't do anything on her own and needed a heart transplant? And so the mother willingly gave the heart of her son up so that this other child could live. And later, what the news report told was that the the woman met up with the family and they gave her a stethoscope. And the mother got to listen to the heartbeat of the young girl, hearing her son's heartbeat that gave life to this little child. See, this is what happens when God gives us faith to believe in Christ and we trust in him. This is the gospel, the good news that changes everything, that you and I have right standing before God because of Christ, not by our efforts, not by our works or our skills, not by how good we do of following less of this or more of that, but by Jesus Christ alone. By him alone, we've been justified before God by his finished work on the cross. And so this, friends, this gospel changes everything. And so when we receive Christ, for those who have trusted in in him and he is in us, see what happens is God puts, God the Father puts the spiritual stethoscope up to our hearts. And he says, that's my son's heartbeat alive in you. That's my son's righteousness in you. See, this is what is theologically referred to as the imputed righteousness of Christ. And really to impute something is to credit or attribute something to someone. And so when we trust in Christ alone, God credits the perfect righteousness of Christ to our account. See, this is why Paul says later to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, for our sake he made him, He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. See, not only is Christ's righteousness imputed to us through faith, but our sin is imputed to Christ. This is what Christ paid for on the cross, the sin debt to God that we were supposed to pay that he had no sin in himself, but our sin was imputed to him on the cross. So as he suffered, he was suffering the just penalty of God's wrath that we deserved. So understand, as we look upon and we celebrate the cross, it is both the understanding of God's full wrath poured out and his full love displayed that by having the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, we are seen by the Father as sinless, as Jesus is sinless. And not because we live a sinless life on our own. It's not our perfection, but Christ alone. And so when God looks at us in Christ, he sees the holiness He sees the perfection and the righteousness of Christ because it is the spiritual stethoscope up to our hearts. It's Christ's heartbeat alive in us. And so all of this, Paul says, depends on faith. 
There are no works you can do. But when we are found in him, it is unto him, unto Christ we live, for we are found in him through faith. And really for the Christian then, when they are living and trusting in God's righteousness given through faith in Christ, then there is a completely different set of values. There is a completely different life. We've discussed this throughout the series, that we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We're called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Why? Because Christ changes everything. And so in the final verse of our text, in verse 10, Paul says that based on the righteousness of Christ and having faith in him and his work, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. See, Paul continues to press upon us this intimate understanding of knowing Christ. In the last verse, Paul made the point of how we may be found in Christ. And now he makes the point of knowing Christ. And so understand If you do not know Christ intimately, you do not know the power of his resurrection. I mean, you may know the facts. You may have watched a a History Channel special, but without faith, you will never know the freedom from sin unto the Savior. You will never know life in Christ. And that's Paul's point. See, the know here is the same as earlier in verse eight. And so to know Christ is, is not the same thing as knowing his historical life. It's not the same thing as knowing correct doctrines regarding Jesus. It's not the same as knowing his moral example. And it's not even the same thing as knowing his great work on our behalf. It's trusting in him. It's intimately abiding in him. And so here, Paul is referring to having a very close and intimate relationship with Christ. It's not what he adds to his resume. It's not what he adds to his theological bookshelf. He trusts in Christ. He suffered for Christ and he is abiding in Christ continually. And so this is Paul's aim. Not anything else. I mean, remember, everything else is worthless to Paul, even his own works and his own righteousness. He considers it all rubbish. Now, understand this. To the lost world, the cross is foolish. I mean, Paul even reminded us of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, dear Christian we look at this day different because of this. I mean, for the world, today is about a bunny. It's about eggs and and toys and baskets and, of course, chocolate. And there's nothing wrong with these elements of themselves, but that is not our focus in this day. It's about a cross that is vacant. It's about a tomb that is vacant. It's about a Savior who has risen. It's about beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And why? Because we have come to know him and the power of his resurrection. And so for the believer, we love the cross. 
I mean, it's much like the old hymn that's saying the old rugged cross. When it says, to the old rugged cross, I will ever be true. It's shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll share. See, as followers of Christ, we take up our own cross. We believe in his resurrection and we share in it. Through Christ, we are raised to new life. And so this is why Paul even goes on to say, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. See, sometimes I wonder if us Christians ever sing that lyric truthfully of the old rugged cross, its shame and reproach gladly bear. That we count not our life as the thing worth, worth anything, but we count Christ as everything. See, Paul recognizes here that suffering, especially for the gospel, brings deeper fellowship with Christ. And so listen, I want you to understand if anyone has ever told you this thing that isn't true, that if you come to follow Christ and you live for Christ, life is gonna be awesome. That you're not gonna have hardship, that you're gonna receive health, wealth, and all this kind of wellness. No, Jesus never promised that. But what he did promise is that we would suffer. He promised that we would be hated, that we would experience hardships. And, and maybe you're sitting here and going, I'm not experiencing that right now, but if you follow Christ, you will. You will. And maybe not now, but maybe later. And maybe not later as in next week, but maybe at one point. I mean, we, we clearly see from Paul in this text that even in suffering, it does not matter because of knowing Christ and being found in him. That Paul is saying from his prison cell that he is writing this, even in the lowest of lows, everything is a loss, even if he gained his freedom because he was found and free in Christ. See, friends, this is the great exchange in the text, that Paul has given up all things to gain Christ. And so let me ask you, have you exchanged your spiritual resume for the resume of Jesus Christ? And understand, you and I can try to work as hard as we think we can to earn our right standing before God, but all of us will stand before him and he will ask, by what right do you stand before me? And see, those who have repented and believed upon the gospel of Jesus Christ can, stay, can say, by the righteousness of Christ alone. They're not even the ones who say, by my merit. It's by Christ alone. And so how is one saved that they would then stand before God in the righteousness of Christ? It's by repenting and believing upon the gospel of Jesus Christ it's where you confess with your mouth that you are a sinner in need of a savior, that the works in your life, the righteousness of your own life affords you nothing. And so let me tell you today, if you see the weight of your sin and the sun is pressing upon your soul, then I pray that you would come to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone.
I mean, church, even for us, may this morning, I pray that we would leave the rubbish of our own works, of our own resumes, and run to the cross where we find new life in Christ. I pray that we would find and press into Christ, understanding that he willingly suffered, so we willingly suffer with him, that we would count everything as a loss for the sake of knowing him. And so as we come to a close this morning, I wanna ask you this and leave you with this. Have you exchanged your resume for Christ's? Understand, when you, when you stand before God, the God of the universe, of which you will, whose resume will you have to show? Whose works and by what merit do you stand before him? Because the believer doesn't put anything of themselves forward. They say, by Christ and Christ alone, who died for my sin in accordance with the scriptures, who was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and whom I believe in and have faith in, whom I trust in alone for life. And so have you exchanged your resume for Christ's? I invite you to consider that this morning as we celebrate and as we go even into today, continuing to celebrate the risen Savior. So let's pray.